I'd like to just complete something we started this morning. Um, do you remember this picture? Yes. yes. And um, I think I put this on the screen but didn't say anything about it. It's a drawing, not a picture. But that uh, brown thing, half circle, that's a macrophage, just a drawing. Oh, boy, it's hard to see, isn't it? Woo! Uh, so here's this macrophage, and uh, or macrophage, either is appropriate. And out here are all these lipids, all these uh, um, lipoproteins, all 18 of them, right? And uh, notice that uh, here's an LDL. You know about that name, don't you? And... Uh, I don't see HDL on there, is it? But um, there's something very interesting. What, what's going on here is that this macrophage has these receptors. That's what this represents. And this notch and this notch and so forth for these various lipoproteins. And this is what's in the bloodstream. Remember that? It's kind of floating by while he's there repairing. And some of the interesting things about this is that sometimes it says slow... And sometimes it says fast. So this VLDL, we had a picture of that. That was one of the four. Um, it uh, ends up getting in slowly. So it's not as dangerous in terms of making this guy into a foam cell. Does that, make, does that sound familiar? As people that say fast. So... Um, the kind of things that make something that was slow turn into fast. See, the fast is oxidization. So even if you had the same amount of lipids in the blood, if they're oxidized, they're more dangerous in terms of causing this plaque to form. Now, the most... The most atherogenic of all the lipoproteins. Now, that's a lot of big words. Did you want to think about that for a minute? What does atherogenic mean? Causing atherosclerosis to happen. The most atherogenic of all the particles is this guy. And they have named him LP little a. You could say LPA if you wanted, but almost everybody says LP little a. It's actually an aggregated group of LDL particles. And when those LDL particles get aggregated like that, what happens? There's a receptor here on the macrophage that's designed to grab those guys and pull them in rapidly. So, um, all 18 aren't showed here, but this is the idea. Oxidant. First of all, the quantity is a problem. We, we need to have fewer of these lipoproteins. Secondly, it's really bad to have them be oxidized. And thirdly, some of the particles are worse than others. The worst of all is that LP little a. Now, this is kind of scary, uh, but Dr. Milton Crane, anybody remember that name? Um, I'd love to tell you some stories about him, but I guess we shouldn't do that. Um, We've worked together overseas as well as in this country. He was just a great fellow. When he passed away, it just broke my heart. He was a wonderful researcher. 
a very bright guy. In fact, I told a physician friend of, one, of mine one time, I can hardly follow him. Um, or maybe I said, he's hard to follow. And the physician laughed. He says, we couldn't follow him in medical school either. <laughs> he was a professor, teacher, for many years at Loma Linda and then worked for like 30 years at Weimar. A lot, well, yeah, no, just about that many years at Weimar. Well, anyhow, um, he did some research at Weimar on... Uh, on how high, what, what levels of LP little a the people had. And he found that there was an elevated LP little a. Are you all tracking with me still? This dangerous particle, this dangerous lipoprotein, LP little a, was elevated in the people that were using isolated soy protein. That's a good question. <laughs> well, it's a refined protein. It's a, it's a protein taken out of soy, isolated soy protein. And uh, so he became quite concerned about this and was quite a proponent of not using products with isolated soy protein in them. Now, and the products that you are mostly familiar with that have those, this, this is why I'm smiling now because it's, a little, this is, a, this is sacred ground here, <laughs> are, the meat, are the meat analogs, the meat analogs. But you'll also see it in other products that are supposed to be healthy, like some soy milks and various things. So we're kind of back to the same thing. If we will, if we will work toward using plants unrefined, we wouldn't have those things, would we? Y'all with me on this? And like I say again, you need to be wise, be patient with each other, be patient with yourself. And uh, especially, folks, be patient with others. Amen? Amen. Especially be patient with other people. Uh, I think that, that there's all, we, could, we could discuss this for a long time. But um, we have found that we, I, I almost never say anything unless I'm asked. If I'm asked to come speak somewhere, I can speak freely. But um, the best thing is to invite people to your home, serve them really good food. And you don't have to tell them it's healthy. Do you? No. I don't want to play games with people. Uh, but uh, God has blessed Neva. And people come to us all the time and they say, I've tried. I can't believe this, frankly, but I, I shouldn't say that. It's hard to believe. They say, I've tried every recipe in the book and they all turned out great. Uh, and part of the reason is that Neva, not only has she been at this for 40 years, it was over 40 years ago we started doing this. And I'll tell you, there weren't any cookbooks out in those days that, that really helped you. And so um, it was a learning experiment. But she was also the food service manager for 10 years at the vegetarian restaurants we opened. I was a conference worker, and we, the, they were conference. We did it, but, you know, they were. she was the food service manager there. And so uh, she was wonderful before that. But 10 years of serving the public, just the stuff we've been teaching here all week. We made no compromises. Um, and uh, the Lord just blessed her. She can make healthy food taste fabulous. Listen, don't feel sorry for me that I have to eat all this health food. Man, a life. Woo! I'm telling you folks, everywhere we go, you, you know, usually we're overseas somewhere and people come all day long for a week. And so we feed them two meals a day, usually not the third meal. We send them home to do their, their own meal or their own simple meal in the evening. 
And they always say, why don't you just go home, Jim, and just leave Neva here, you know. <laughs> Fortunately, Neva draws a line in the sand. <laughs> so, uh, let me carry this one step further, and then we'll get on to our other topic. Um, so, what difference does it make? Now, let's say that somebody has a total cholesterol of 174, like I do right now. It's been 176. It's, it's insignificant. Two points is, means nothing. And uh, let's suppose that 47 of that is HDL. So that, that gives the ratio I was talking about of one of uh, four into that is 3.7. That's the one you saw earlier today. Now, um, if we give that person uh, the same amount of calories from fat, but we give some of them as saturated fat instead of unsaturated fat, this is what happens. I'm sorry. That happens too. But uh, the amount of cholesterol found in the bloodstream rises. Why is that? It's saturated fat. But what's the mechanism with saturated fat? It causes the body to make more cholesterol. You all with me on that? Now, interestingly enough, the HDL rises some. Watch this. Can you see that it's up a little? But the ratio is worse. So just changing the fat from unsaturated to saturated causes this problem. Now, there's, a, there's an interesting caveat here. You all know, you know, you may not know the number, but you all know that coconut is a lot of saturated fat. I presume you know that. 96% of the fat in coconut, which is a plant, is uh, saturated. And um, we started working in the Caribbean, oh, 10, 15 years ago. And a lot of those islands, uh, they've stopped producing their own food. And they import everything, and it's expensive. And so the, the, the cashew nuts that we used a lot of or whatever was too expensive. And Neva starts making these recipes out of coconut milk. And I'm thinking, sweetheart. Well, it was right about that time that some research was uh, published that showed that the islanders, Pacific or Atlantic or Caribbean, are not getting sick because of all this coconut they eat. Or even all this coconut milk. They make the coconut milk by taking a dry coconut. Not the green ones that they drink the juice out of. They take a dry coconut, take the meat out, and, and uh, boil it, for a, cook it for a minute or two, or however long, I don't remember. And then they squeeze the milk out of it. And the research showed that they were not getting sick because of eating the coconut with all this saturated fat or drinking all this coconut milk. They're getting sick out there, and they are getting sick. Uh, because they're living like Americans or Westerners, if you wish. And if you go to those islands, and many of you have been there briefly, if, if not for a long time, uh, it's, it's sad what has happened. And there are islands where 50% of the people today have type 2 diabetes, and uh, they didn't have it before. Uh, it, and, it's, and it's just a tragedy. So I, I called up a, the head of a nutrition department friend of mine at a university, and I said, this is amazing. What's going on? Because the research showed that the coconut was not causing this, right? And he said, um, we don't know what's causing it. He said, it's probably the phytochemicals. Did I, did I talk about that this week ever? 
You know the nutrients that are in foods are carbohydrates, fats, and proteins, vitamins, and minerals. At least that's what we thought for 100 years. We should have known better. And this is a long story. I'm just going to make it several sentences. Today we know of over 8,000 substances, chemicals, if you wish, that are in plants that are none of those. And we have medical histories of feeding people these five things through a tube in the tummy or an IV, depending, because they can't eat for whatever reason. And you can keep people alive for several years and they seem to be in perfect health. Women have gotten pregnant and born babies uh, on just uh, this kind of supplemented nutrition. Uh, and so, but what, what has been learned is that these other, these 8,000, and there's probably more of these, these 8,000 substances, why am I pointing to these fingers? Anyway, these 8,000 these 8, substances have to do with long-term issues. You've all heard that lycopene probably prevents prostate cancer. Have you heard that? Lycopene is one of the 8,000. And uh, it's a very interesting story. If we had an afternoon to do this, I, I, I would just tell you the whole story and give you the background. But nevertheless, um, he says to me, we don't know why, but it's probably the, probably the uh, phytochemicals. That was the term that was first used. The problem is these five things are also chemicals, aren't they? Isn't that a chemical? You've some side, you have said, probably, I don't want chemicals in my food. Well, I know what you mean, but that, that wasn't a very good way to say it because everything that's in food is chemicals. Right? Protein. You're not nodding with me. Aren't you all with me? Protein's a chemical. Fat's a chemical. Are all the vitamins and minerals? Chem- yes, they are. But I know what you mean. You mean I don't want man to make a chemical and stick it in there. I understand that. Me too. Nevertheless, um, here's all these substances, chemicals, that have, they turn out to have all these incredible benefits long term. You don't see an effect short term. And by the way, in passing here, uh, it happens that you get eight times as much lycopene if the tomato is cooked rather than it being raw. I don't have time to deal with this, but this idea of raw food in very high percentages is a fad that has no science behind it. And raw food is good. But there are nutrients in raw foods that are captured in in matrices that your body cannot get unless it's cooked. So interesting. Well, so, yes, sweetheart. We get 10 cents of that. I don't know if she told you that, but. (laughs) Rayleigh's coconut milk. It's gotten, it's gotten expensive. It's gotten expensive. Now, class, back to our point at hand here. My wife says it's good, so buy it. Um, so, um, so Neva starts making recipes with coconut milk, and I'm still, I'm still thinking, come on, you guys, I've got this big risk behind me. But after about five years of that, of using quite a bit of coconut in our home and coconut milk, my cholesterol, if anything, is down a little bit. So the research, at least in my case, seems to be uh, uh, consistent with what I'm finding personally. However, there's a diet out there called the PRISM diet. Anybody ever heard of it? Yeah. Who, which recommends that you take uh, tablespoons of coconut oil every day. Are you aware of that? And... and uh, I have a number of physician friends who have said to me, I've had patients do that, and before long their cholesterols are sky high. Now, I don't know why, 
it's probably the case that they're not getting the whole plant food. You understand? Uh, well, or ate the coconut itself. The coconut milk is is probably lacking some portion of some nutrients. But the research has showed that it, the coconut milk is not causing a problem. But to take the oil out, see, and use it is, even though your skin gets kind of nice, is not a very good idea, in our opinion. Well, okay, so now let's suppose, let's suppose that you, see, this is, this is no extra fat. This is just changing from unsaturated or a good portion of from unsaturated to saturated. You all with me? Yes. It's after lunch, I know, but you still got to talk to me with your expression, if not your voices. Yes. Now let's change some of that saturated fat to, tr- to trans fat. You all know trans is bad, right? And this is what happens. You, you don't get any higher cholesterol but the HDL drops even less than what it was here. So the ratio gets even worse. You all with me in the idea? Now, how many of you know where these trans fats come from? Anybody? How many? You need to know, wouldn't you say? Yeah. Uh, just, just for fun, just for fun, when I was a child... Be careful, don't just say Crisco. This is a story. Uh, when I was a child, not far from here, I was raised in Quincy, California for some of the years. My mother taught me to bake pies because I like pies. And I said, I wanted more pies. And so she says, you bake them, you can have them. Well, she wanted to teach me. Anyway, and so in those days, we used Crisco to make crust. I can't even see my own red light now. There it is. And on right down there where I'm pointing at the bottom on the right, in white letters, it said, hydrogenated vegetable oil. Now, if you remember, I told you that, that unsaturated fat is bent, right? And when you add hydrogen at the bend, it straightens out. So, I, I don't know if I made much of a point out of this, but unsaturated fat is liquid at room temperature. And saturated fat is solid at room temperature. So, um, they took plant oils and hydrogenated it till it was saturated, and so it was solid at room temperature. It makes nice pie crust. You all with me on the idea? About that, about that time, this was in the middle 50s, uh, the science began to show that there was cholesterol in the plaque, we didn't even call it that then, building up in people's arteries. And, that, and they recognized even early on that saturated fat was connected with this. And so the people that made Crisco... Uh, said, okay, here's what we'll do. We will only partially hydrogenate it. We will bubble up this hydrogen gas through this vat of heated oil and the bubbles disappear. The bubbles of hydrogen gas, why would they disappear? They're attaching into the bands, right? Y'all with me? And we will just do that a little bit, just enough to make the fat solid at room temperature and then we'll have a fair amount of unsaturated fat and that will be better for people. Follow the reasoning? So for years, at the bottom of the can there, it said, partially hydrogenated vegetable oil. Now, when the whole issue of trans fats was... (coughs) Excuse me. 
uncovered, unearthed. Uh, and, the, and, the, and the things I just showed you in the previous slide, you get more heart disease with trans fats than you do with just plain saturated fats. Did you follow that? You understand in all three of those, we were p- talking about the same amount of fat. The first was unsaturated, sat- more saturated than before. Some of the saturated is now trans. And so guess what's on the bottom of the can anymore now? Hydrogenated vegetable oil. Because trans fats are created during the hydrogenation process. If it's only partial. Got it? So is it worse for you now than it was when they first started making it? It's the same as when they first started making it. With the trans, it was worse. So they can't say no trans fat. They can because it's fully hydrogenated. If you're all with me, folks, I didn't say this. When you... Yeah, sorry. Let Let me do it again. You have some unsaturated fat with bends. You add hydrogen and you add it until all the bends are straight and you have hydrogenated vegetable oil. Solid at room temperature. They found out that you could hydrogenate only some of them and the stuff would still be solid at room temperature. And because they understood that unsaturated fats were better for you, they they created this stuff, partially hydrogenated vegetable oil, solid at room temperature. When the trans fat thing became understood and they saw that it was causing more heart disease than just the hydrogenated vegetable oil, they went back to that. Now, that is still saturated fat. That stuff in that Crisco can, though it came from a plant, is still saturated fat. It's just as bad for you as animal fat, except there's no cholesterol with it. It's hard to get animal fat without cholesterol, isn't it? Because animal products have cholesterol in them. So uh, that's the story there. But what creates the trans fats is, is the partial hydrogenation process. Not fully hydrogenating because even the trans fatty acids, which I'll show you a picture, they become saturated if you keep this process going long enough so that fully, if you wish, hydrogenated, even by vegetable oils, have no trans fats. You all with me on the idea? Are we caught up together? How many have I lost? So trans fatty acids are produced by the partial hydrogenation of unsaturated fatty acids. Okay. Now, um, I thought I had a picture here, but this is worth a moment. If you take all the carbohydrate, protein, vitamins, minerals, and phytochemicals out of that ear of corn... What do you have left? The fiber is actually carbohydrate. You have oil left. And it takes 14, depends on the size, takes 14 ears of corn to make one tablespoon of oil. Now, without a lot of expansion, which I would normally do, I think you'd agree with me that God intended us for us to get that tablespoon of oil. When we eat 14 ears of corn. Would you agree? Now, let me show you what we do. This is why we're sick, folks. This is why Adventists are sick today. Just watch this. Watch this. 
Here's a big potato. This is bigger than you'd normally serve as a baked potato, but somebody might eat one this large. It has 200 calories. The average baked potato served on a plate would maybe have 100 calories. And uh, if you cut this up in thin slices and, and cook them into potato chips, that one potato is now 2,000 calories if you read the back of the bag. This is a family-sized bag. And on the back of the bag, it will say uh, the ingredients are potatoes, vegetable oil, salt. That's all. And then it will say two, uh, two, uh, a thousand calories. And so uh, I didn't tell you that uh, that tablespoon of oil, it doesn't matter whether it's lard, butter, margarine, Crisco, any kind of oil. They're almost all exactly the same. They're tiny variations, but it's 100 calories per tablespoon. Just keep that in mind. 100 calories per tablespoon. And uh, so that 200-calorie potato needs another 800 calories to make 1,000. Is that correct? And where does it come from? The, the vegetable oil that has been fried in or cooked in, deep fat fried. Or sometimes they just spray it on there as the chips go through the oven. And uh, if you have eight tablespoons of oil times 14 ears of corn, you've got to have 112 ears to make it. And, you, and you'd agree with me, wouldn't you, that you need that eight tablespoons of oil when you eat 112 ears of corn. Is that right? Plus, there's another problem, folks. When you eat that oil by itself, not only do you, do you lose all the protein and, and the fiber and the carbohydrate and vitamins and minerals that God intended for you to have, you lose all those phytochemicals too. Thousands of them. Y'all with me on this? This is not smart. This is making people sick. It's making Adventists sick because we have, we have uh, uh, haystacks often at the potluck or at something. And what's at the bottom of the haystacks? A bunch of chips, deep fat fried. Oxidized fat. It's not smart, folks. It's amazing. And now, again, you've got to be patient with your neighbors, right? Say yes. And, uh, but, listen, if you have hypertension... And if, or if you have diabetes or if you have heart disease, the physicians I work with will say to you, you will not get well until you stop using every drop of free oil. You want to get well? And let me tell you, folks, it is astonishing. Ninety percent of the people with hypertension go through the program and they have normal blood pressure with no medication. It is absolutely incredible. Same thing with diabetes. And you know about heart disease. It's all over the scientific community now. Everybody knows. I say everybody. The scientists all know that you can reverse heart disease by changing lifestyle. Biggest killer in this country. 10 747s full a day, completely preventable. And the, and the leaders in this research will not let their patients have any oil in order to get the heart disease reversed. So pretty, pretty interesting stuff. Um, now let's go on. And was there a co- comment or two? I'm sorry. Yes. Yeah. I'm with you. Yeah. Uh, the question was, what about genetics? It's just like I have a great genetic risk for heart disease. Um, if I would live like the average American or even the average Seventh-day Adventist, my cholesterol would probably be 250. And um, it, I would probably be dead of heart disease by now. 
looking at my father and grandfather. So even when there's a high genetic uh, inclination, it's rare that we can't keep those people well. I have a whole lecture on this one question. So what can I do about this except tell you that um, except in some very rare cases, very rare cases, if those people who have the hereditary issue would change the way they're living, they could be well. And when I say rare, there's probably only six people in the whole U.S. that have the worst case where they come into the clinic with with cholesterols of 5,000. It's genetic. It's an unusual genetic situation. And they die by the time they're five years old of heart disease, maybe at the best eight or ten. And then there's another category where they come into the office at maybe they're 20 years of age, 25, and they have cholesterols of 2,000. This is rough, plus or minus, right? And the best thing we can do for them, we can't, we, you know, uh, it's, it's, but it's extremely rare. So the, the, the garden variety genetic issue will be taken care of with the proper lifestyle. Okay, so the average cancer cell, some faster, some slower, the average cancer cell doubles in a hundred days. You know this, that cancer starts because one cell somewhere in a person's body became mutated, became cancerous. You all with me on that? You know that, don't you? hundred days later, it's two cells. That's pretty slow growth. hundred days later, it's four. You all with me on the idea? It takes ten years before that tumor is big enough to image or palpate. On average, there are some more aggressive and some a lot slower. It's an average. I know of a fellow just, just a few weeks ago diagnosed with a very aggressive brain tumor. First symptoms virtually, they, they, they image it and they see what it is. They know from the image what they tell him. You've just got, you've got very short time to live. 17 days later, he was dead. Very aggressive tumor. It's, it's unusual. The average is 100 days. The problem is that almost without exception during those 10 years, cells leave the tumor and travel around the body. Most of them die. The reason that um, breast cancer often metastasizes either to the lungs and perhaps more often to bones isn't because that's the only places the cells went. They go everywhere in the body. It's just that they don't grow very well anywhere else. And so a lot of the cancer cells that leave the tumor die. A few of them one here and there, find refuge in a spot where they manage to survive. And that, in enough time, that will become a tumor. You all with me? You all understand this. They find a tumor in the liver. It, it's not primary to the liver. You understand that? The pathologists look at the cell. They can tell where that thing started, the type of cell that it is. So uh, this is not good news, folks, because uh, even though they tell you we have cured this, this percentage of breast cancer or this percentage of that cancer, You know what those are? Those are five-year figures. You don't see published anywhere after five years. years. It's it's really a big lie. Mm -hmm. Now, occasionally somebody gets a complete cure. I I meet them all the time, here and there. And they're alive 25 years later. And it's very unlikely that any cancer is growing anywhere after that many years. You know that. So, and it's even more tricky now because we're diagnosing these things much earlier than we used to. 
So five years is even less meaningful, y'all with me, than it was at one time. Because it used to be that usually if there was a tumor around there somewhere growing, it's going to show up within five years. But you all know people where it's been seven, eight, ten years, right? And the cancer, we say, comes back. It's okay to say that, but it didn't come back. It was there all the time, there all the time. Well, so her daughter had thyroid cancer. Is she going to have cancer somewhere else? We don't know. But, the, but my, my, my point is that it is rare that cells have not left tumors and are growing somewhere else. It's rare. And so uh, John McDougall, how many of you know the name? Highly respected. Gave a lecture I heard it recently. The fallacy of early detection. And the whole basis was the cells are already gone. Long before they're... The tumor is early detected. Now, this is bad news, but let me tell you what the good news is, folks. We now know that uh, prevention is just amazing at what we can do to prevent cancer from occurring in our bodies. Just for example, I think I mentioned this, didn't I? What does Ellen White say the biggest cause of cancer is? Do you remember what she says? Meat eating. Now, we don't know the mechanism for sure. Science understands today that people that eat plants get very little cancer. Uh, now, if you did what I did when I was young, even though I've been a plant eater for a long time, uh, here's what's taking place. You probably know this, but let's just make this clear that you, that you understand this. There is no exception to this. Every cancer is the result of changing our genes. The way we say it is that the genetic material has been mutated. That's the word. And what are the mutating agents? They're called carcinogens. Now, cancer uh, is a very complicated situation and it is many different diseases. Virtually every different kind of cancer is a different disease and has different issues, but there are a lot of commonalities. And... um, In all cases, there's no exception to this, it is the result of a mutated gene. Now, you could have gotten that mutated gene from a parent. There is a BRCA, breast BRCA cancer 1 and 2, that only a small percentage of women have, which makes it more likely for them to get breast cancer. So that was a mutated gene that you got from your parents. And uh, even, ladies, even if you happen to be diagnosed with uh, a BRCA1 or 2, the increased risk for breast cancer is really quite small. But uh, most cancers occur because of mutations that take place in our living tissue. Yeah, the genetics is there. And uh, the question is, yeah, can't, well, because, you know, see, we don't know for sure without doing an extensive study on the genes. And even then, we're not sure what caused the cancer. This is an interesting world today. But uh, that could have come through you just as easily. It could have come from, I mean, you, the fact that your mother got breast cancer does increase your daughter's risk through your mother. But that's you, too. That's your mother is you, isn't it? See, so uh, and of course, if it's both lines, there's an increased risk. My grandson, I don't know if I showed you his picture. 
the oldest grandson of all our kids, the oldest grandchild, uh, his grandpa has prostate cancer. And his other grandpa has prostate cancer. This kid's at high risk. High risk. Now, let's, um, let me just make one more point and I'll start with some slides. Um, so, so there are mutating agents and we call them carcinogens. The other part of the picture is there are growth promoters. And I'll show you some slides that briefly describe this again. There are cancer sites in the body which no one ever knows about and they never cause a problem because they didn't grow. And there's virtually no cancer cell that will become a tumor without a growth promoter. I'll give you a very interesting example among many is that you all know about asbestos in lung cancer, correct? I'll get your hand in a second. Uh, When I point at you if your hand's up, it means I don't want you to have to sit there like this all the time, but I'm pretty sure remember to come back to you. Uh, Asbestos is not a carcinogen. It is a growth promoter. The cancer cell is there, and if asbestos is around, the chances of that cell becoming a tumor are, oh, what is it, 50-fold greater, some number. Don't hold me to the number, but it's huge. It's just huge beyond belief. So uh, I'll show you now, but this is what's behind every cancer issue is not only the carcinogen, which, ca- which caused the mutation that made the cancer, the cell become cancerous, but there is the growth promoter that has to be there. And I think I'll get to this slide near the end, but I think it was in Stockholm where they showed in a study that I think it's 37% of breast cancers would never be needed to treat it because they're not going to grow because the growth promotion is not there. And, and I'll come back to this issue. The big killers I want to talk about today, see, we know about lung cancer and smoking. I'm not even going to deal with that because probably hardly one person in this room is a smoker. But uh, the big issue is um, colon cancer. You talk about prevention. This, isn't, this is partly lifestyle. But even people on a poor lifestyle, if they will have colonoscopies, you all know this, I hope, 99% of colon cancer grows, starts in a polyp. And uh, starting at age, age 45 or 50, depending on your background in terms of who, both of my parents got colon cancer. Can you believe that? So guess about me. I have a GI friend. You know what a GI is. Not an army guy, but a doc. I'm happy to have him look in me often. And uh, we've worked together. In fact, he's going to be at the dock. He's going to be the dock with me in our next session starting September 4 up at our place. Anyway, uh, so uh, if, you will, if you eliminate by surgery, surgical removal, it's a simple thing. They take a little wire loop and they heat it up with electricity. They make it. And they cauterize that thing as they pull it off and it's almost never a complication and, and so forth. And then they biopsy it to see what kind of shape it's in. So uh, it's, it, with, 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 uh, with an exception I'll discuss with you in just a moment, we can eliminate virtually all colon cancer, which has been the number two killer for men and women depending on the age, age, ages and various situations in this country for a long time. You know, I didn't get back to you and I apologize. If you don't have this done. Oh. Well, okay, I'll repeat what she said and make a comment. 
the physician that treated her husband for prostate cancer said, if you have a child, if you have a son, he will have prostate cancer. He could have said that even if um, your husband didn't have prostate cancer because all men, there's no exception, if they live long enough, will get prostate cancer. So what he's really saying is, did you know that? No. Yeah. All men will get prostate cancer if they live long enough. And so what he's really saying is he's going to get it earlier than he would have perhaps otherwise. And, and, and statistically, that's true. But uh, I wouldn't say that if I were his physician because you never know for sure. But, but the idea is there, and, and so it's fair enough. Usually by, the, usually by the time a man is 90 to 95 years of age, 95 to 100% of them will have prostate cancer. It's not, it's not a threat for life at that point in time because it's so slow growing. And I'm going to tell you now how to make it way slower growing than that. You'll be you're just amazed at this. Is there any risk to the spouse because the husband had cancer? Not because of genetics, but if lifestyle was involved, yes. And I'm going to look at some of those things too. So let's try to move ahead and see if the questions get partially answered. The cancer challenge is the result of one renegade cell which becomes abnormal, usually in degrees, by successive mutations in the genetic material of the cell. The average cancer cell takes 100 days. I've already mentioned that. I'm not going to read that. So the cancer is caused by a combination of a carcinogen, which is, alters the DNA. This is called a mutation. And a promoter, a substance which case a, plays a key role in making the cells grow, which have been transformed by carcinogens. The interesting thing I mentioned, a normal cell, anywhere in your body, you can take a cell out with a knife or something, a little biopsy, if you wish, and put it on an auger plate. And it will, if you feed it nutrients, it will start dividing and growing. And after about 30, 25 to 35 generations, it will no longer divide. And this has been a puzzle to scientists for years. We now know the reason. I don't know if I'll get time to talk about it. But it stops dividing. Unlike a cancer cell, which we apparently, they are, what would be the word? Immortal? Until the Lord burns them all up one day, I hope soon. <laughs> Um, that was going to be a, a, a movie of the cell dividing and copying the DNA. Uh, but I'll not take the time. You all saw that in Biology 101. This is a, a painting of the DNA. I think you must all know that the DNA is like a ladder that you grab the top and the bottom and you twist them in opposite directions. And the two sides of the ladder make something called a helix. So since there's two of them, it's called a double helix. That's what Watson and Crick got the Nobel Prize for back in, what was it, 1956, 52, because they figured that out. Now, um, so here's a drawing that I made. The, the, the side of the ladder is actually a bunch of chemicals hooked together to make the side. There's the other side. And you may know this, that the rungs of the ladder, that's actually the Genetic code. You all, how many are sort of aware of that? The rungs are there. Now, most of you didn't raise your hands. And this is a primer. And try not to get worried if you don't catch everything. But maybe the drift will be good. The rung is made up of two parts, two chemicals. And there's only four kinds in the body. So you have, And they have names, but the first letter is what we almost always use. There's an A and a T and a G and a C. 
Two of them together make a rung. Y'all with me? And A's always hook to T's. Only. Or T's to A's. Always. And G's and C's hook together only. Always. And there's a lot of interesting stuff behind that. But that's it's because of this unique feature that you can build a code. Now, the only thing that the genetic code does is it... Co- watch this. I'll say it one way and then try to make it make more sense if it doesn't right off. It codes for the building of a protein. You could say it's a pattern for building a protein. You all with me on that? Now, you're not very impressed as you sit there. I wish you were more impressed. All the genes, and by the way, this is interesting. In our bodies, the cells all have the same genetic material. You're aware of that. Every cell. You could, you could essentially clone yourself from a cell from your toenail, from your ear, from your uterus. Well, it doesn't matter. They all have the same genetic material. And uh, how many of you heard of, of something called sequencing the human genome? Boy, that stuff doesn't... How many know about that? Just raise your hands. Keep them up for a second. Now, shame on the rest of you that you're not reading very much. This was one of the most expensive scientific undertakings our government has ever done. Billions and billions. To sequence. What does that mean? It's so amazing, folks. All they did, this you might say, billions for that? All they did was get the order of the letters. I wish you all would have gasped. <laughs> Sequenced the, the DNA. In that process, scientists know where genes start and where they stop. I won't get into why's, because we just don't have that kind of time. They, they, they knew that we needed about a hundred thousand genes. Because each gene codes for a protein. Are you all with me on that? Because they knew that we had about 100,000 proteins in our bodies to make us work. So they needed 100,000 genes to make the protein. you all with me on that? As they were sequencing the human DNA, they found that there were only 30,000 genes. (laughs) And that only took up less actually, than 10% of the genome. Genome is just all the genetic material. I wish you would have gasped again. You can't do it in a mocking format. That won't work. I'm really not trying to just be funny. I want you to, I would like you to sense that this is big stuff. And some scientists came along and had the temerity to say the rest of the DNA was junk. You ever heard the term junk DNA? But God don't make no junk. He should have known better than to say that. And now, oh, I wish I had, you know, an hour on this little point. Um, What we have learned is that all of this space between the genes is elegant control function. Just unbelievably complex, beyond imagination, the way this thing is designed to control all this process stuff. It is just 
and you just you just mess up one or two genes and the and the organism dies. It's just incredible. So this is why, folks, and, and my my local church has asked me to do next March a six evening seminar on creation evolution. And uh, we're praying that many people will be moved by and interested in that. And we're going to follow it with an evangelistic meeting. Connecting with all this stuff that has so much biblical implications. And uh, the point I'm making is there are um, there are scientists all over the world, folks. A, A survey was done recently. Listen, to you may not know this, but about. Maybe only it's it's been thought for years that maybe only three or five percent of scientists are believers in God. Um, Now, I can't say the name of the big uh, survey guys. Huh? Yeah. Gallup did a poll shows that 40 percent of scientists uh, in this country actually believe in God and uh, go to church or pray or something. But in their professional circles, they're atheists. Um, very interesting. But what I was going to say is, oh, we have a structure. We have a political and cultural structure in the scientific world that to, if you let it be known that you're a creationist, you can't even get your degree. It is unbelievable. Unbelievable. I, let's not go there, but that's the case. So, uh, but listen, this just just for fun. The world's leading authority on what was called chemical evolution and this this gentleman and other scientists, these are amino acids, okay? Uh, the problem with amino acids is they've got to be hooked up in the, in, in the exact order. Otherwise, they don't work. Because proteins work because of their shape. And uh, sequencing is correct, although that determines the shape. So if you get this out of sequence, the shape is... Not, and it won't work, see. So they were arguing that uh, uh, this man was arguing that amino acids had in- inherent intelligence to know how to hook up. That would be necessary for evolution because their theory was that maybe there was a, an amino acid soup out there of two billion years ago and, and the proteins, the amino acids uh, had enough smarts to know how to hook up into, <laughs> into these... Uh, into these 100,000 proteins and uh, just right with no mistakes. And uh, the fellow that uh, was became the world's most respected uh, authority in this was a guy named Michael Denton. Google this sometime. Michael Denton. He wrote a book. He was a co-author, but he was really the author. And uh, it was heralded all over the world as the answer that would prove evolution. And even while that book was in its heyday, this is like 25 years ago, 20 years ago, uh, this guy's teaching classes in the university and students, listen to this, students are asking questions. And he admits, he says, it drove me back to the laboratory. And he, rec- he finally did research and recognized that the evidence was piling up that all of that he had written was not correct. And he became a believer. This is the world's leading authority in chemical evolution. This is exciting, folks, what's happening today. It's just amazing. Well, hurry, hastening on. We're talking about the, the chromosomes. The genetic material is actually divided into 23 pairs. You know that, don't you? Of chromosomes. And, but it's still, it's still a ladder. 
And the idea is that um, here's a longer ladder. The idea is that, uh, oh, by the way, this was Newsweek a while back. This is granddaughter and this is grandma and they look alike because of the gene. You understand that, right? And the whole magazine was on this topic. And um, um, so here's a here's just a just a diagram. You can see the T's and the C's and the G's and the A's. Billions of dollars to figure that out. And this would be a gene from here to here. And so this is going. Are y'all with me? This is going to code for a protein. Y'all with me on that? I'm, I, I would, normally I'd take the time to talk about this. I'm going to pass the slides up because it's just too much in, a, in an afternoon after lunch. But uh, I'm showing here how the amino acids are chosen by the by the uh, by the uh, code, and they get hooked together into a protein. And um, here is uh, how it sort of happens. There's a ooh, listen to this. Scientists have learned today that the cell is full of machines. Thousands of machines that do stuff. Machines that pick up something and carry it to the right place. And it's not like a machine that has cylinders and spark plugs. It's a protein. All of these machines are proteins. There is a machine uh, at the tail end of a, of a paramecium where this little flagellum is. You all know about that from biology. This little tail. It's like, a, it's like an outboard motor. It spins and the thing swims. That little motor, folks, spins at 100,000 RPM. And it can stop and go 100,000 RPM in the other direction in one quarter of a turn. And scientists now know that it takes, let's see, is it 36 or 40 proteins to make that motor? It has a commutator and it has some bearings and it's unbelievable. And... uh, um, Yeah, it is. And so, it's, and the scientists recognize it is utterly impossible that natural selection... See, natural selection works like this. You accidentally get some gene that got changed into some different gene, and it gave you something that allowed you to survive better than other people. And so, you, you survive with that gene, and everybody else doesn't survive. You all understand that idea. See, you, there's no way you can do that with a complicated machine. Because how would the organism build pieces and do any better until the whole thing was finally there working, right? You got the idea. So the guy that knows more about this machine than anybody in the world has become a believer. Just incredible. He has spent his whole life studying that motor that's running that tail. It is incredible. Now, how did I get off on that? Oh, um, so there's a machine that comes and cuts the ladder. Well, it actually opens the ladder up, doesn't cut it. Another machine puts a copy of the A's with the T's and the G's with the C's. This is the copy that is built by the motor, the machine. And that copy is pulled out by another machine. And another machine, that's all these little black dots all over here. Another machine, I've actually got an incredible movie on this, translates this and builds the protein. Are we fearful? She wants me to show a little bit of it. And um, it's so dim, dear, it, it, it's not going to be that useful. So uh, here's the connection with cancer. Uh, there's a picture of the machine, and I'm just going to pass this up. Uh, and 
but it makes a protein. And um, there's a picture of this of the of all the of all the amino acids hooked together, okay? And then they get folded up into the proper shape and so forth. Now, here's the cancer issue. In 1976, a scientist was studying the human cell and cancer and found to his astonishment that in this particular person, in this cell, was a gene that, if expressed, would make the cell cancerous. Expressed means if the body uses that gene to make a protein. Y'all with me? The only thing genes are for is a pattern for proteins, right? And lots of genes don't get expressed at certain times. That's what all this control mechanism is about. You're you're making that connection? This elegant control mechanism decides when any particular place is going to be, any particular gene is going to be used to make a protein, see, for the pattern. And the scientists found that if that gene got expressed, that's the term we used, in other words, if it was used to make a protein, that protein would make that cell cancerous. And he said, this is an oncogene. Oncogene? Oncology? This is an oncogene. If that gene it ends up causing a, you know, a protein is made from that pattern, the cell will become cancerous. Whew. People said, they did gasp. And they said, I'm glad I don't have any of those. It turns out that we all have them. Many of them. Now, when I get to heaven, I'm going to class. I hope you'll be there with me. I will not be the teacher. I will be sitting on the A row. And I'm going to raise my hand and say, and you know who the teacher will be? The creator. Sir. And we won't. It wouldn't be quite like this, but... Would you discuss oncogenes, please? <laughs> you know, why? Where? Where of? But this is, the, this is the nature of the human physiology today. Now, scientists didn't know at the time, they didn't know at the time that if this did get expressed, but this was learned before long, that there was another gene. See, this is inactivated at the moment. In fact, they quit calling it an oncogene after about a dozen years, and they said it's a proto-oncogene. What does that mean? It's, it's before, proto, before. It's going to be an oncogene, but it isn't quite yet. And uh, that's the term we use today. What, and here's the idea. In order to make this inactivated gene active, watch this interesting point. It takes a mutation. A change in one of the A's or the T's of the G's of C. Y'all with me on that? A specific mutation. Not just any mutation. So you could have a lot of mutations take place and this thing still wouldn't become active. Y'all with me on the idea? A specific mutation. When that, when they figured that out, then they learned something else. Even though this thing is now an oncogene, the cell is not becoming cancerous because there's another gene nearby that's a tumor suppressor gene. <laughs> And any mutation on the tumor suppressor gene will make it unable to suppress. This is, we're talking control again, right? We're talking the control of the expression of that oncogene. See, any mutation will allow that thing, it will allow the cell now to become cancerous. So let's talk for just a minute about mutations. What is the source of mutations? You, you understand why we want to know about what's the source of mutations? If there were no mutations, there would be no 
No cancer. All right. Radiation. Now, I need an hour on this, so here we go in three sentences, right? Radiation is widely misunderstood. In fact, people have these devices on the counter near their sink that are called microwaves. And uh, microwave ovens, if you wish. And what is the what is the lay term, the lay shorthand term that we use when we want somebody to put something in there? Nuke it. Very unfortunate. Uh, so let me show you why. There is a spectrum of radiation. And down here we have uh, uh, radio waves that penetrate water used for submarines, uh, AM radio waves, television waves, FM, um, radar, uh, radar ovens. Uh, you, you may not know this. The very first microwaves that came out were called radar ranges. You remember that? Watch this. Uh, infrared, visible light, ultraviolet light, soft X-rays, hard X-rays, gamma rays, etc. And and what's going on here is as you move down this spectrum, energy is increasing. The energy in each of these radiations is greater. And it finally gets great enough so it can actually damage a cell. And what I'm really talking about is damage the DNA. That's the issue. You all with me on this? So we call it ionizing radiation. That's a term physicists use. And it doesn't start till you get about up in here. Ionizing radiation. There's not enough energy in the light wave or the wave. It's the same stuff. It's the same stuff your eyes see. All with me? This looks like light. In heaven, we'll probably have a, a broader spectrum and we'll be able to see radio waves if they have radios in heaven. I'm, I'm not sure. I don't. I don't want to talk about microwaves very much today. But I hope you can see how foolish it is to say nuke it, because nuke people think of nuclear radiation. And these radiation particles out here after X-rays all come from the nuclei of atoms with huge energies that can mess stuff up. Y'all with me on this idea? Anyway, radiation. Uh, you may not know this. This is amazing. I can't. I, frankly, I don't even believe these figures. But uh, let, let me ask you this question. You all know about radon. Where might radon occur in your lifetime? Where in your house? In the basement. Uh, I shouldn't do this. The ground is full of uranium. I mean, there's uranium there. Uranium keeps sending out little particles. And every time it sends out a particle, high energy particle that, that causes mutations, it becomes a different substance. And finally, it becomes lead. And then it quits sending stuff out. You all with me on the basic idea? You kind of know that, don't you, this, this idea? And one of those steps, it makes a gas, not a solid. And that gas seeps up through the ground and it goes right through concrete and gets into your basement. And then it doesn't go any higher and it just builds up in your basement. And they claim there's 20,000 deaths a year in this country from radon poisoning. That is a lot. I really can't believe it. But that's what the literature says. They have detectors for all of these radiations. We won't get into that. It's, it's, not, it's not hard to detect. 
Well, you can open the window and it all runs out. Or you can put a fan that sucks against the dirt in the basement. This is why you builders know you have to put pea, washed pea gravel. You know that? And a pipe in there with holes in it so that if the radon shows up, you can pump it out with a fan that only costs you $150 and let it run all day long. I don't want to go there today, but I'd be happy to. I'm a physicist. That was my first world. I have a graduate degree in physics. But anyway, let, let's go on. So the point is that radiations, uh, radon, you, you, while you're sitting here, probably every second there's three or four particles that pass right through your body from space, from the ground. And do these things cause mutations? Yes. Um, so we live in a world where there's some risk. Uh, but... Radiation from the environment is probably not a great cause of too much cancer, maybe with the exception of radon. Uh, it has to be pretty intense radiation before there's enough of it. You remember the Chernobyl? I don't know if you know this, the guys that ran the helicopters and dumped concrete on the thing. They came to Seattle to get treated. They all died. All those helicopter pilots, virtually all of them got cancer, even though they were way up in the air. There's so much, there's so much mutation that they're going to get cancer. There's just no question about it and die, see. All right. Oh, uh, toxins. There are chemicals that seep into the cell and can actually alter the DNA. Chemical carcinogens. Cigarette smoke has quite a few of them that can actually, a little tiny chemical that can meander through the bloodstream and get inside a cell and get inside the nucleus and actually mutate the DNA. Toxins around us. By the way, there's a pill concept going around here. Um, pesticides, herbicides, and, and uh, water that may have something in it. And we speak about all that as though it's a big issue and it's a pretty small issue in comparison. Watch this, folks, to lifestyle. Are you all with me? We get quite exercised about tiny things. And the big thing is sitting there in my lap, the way I'm treating my body. Y'all with me on the idea? Scientists have looked at this, and they're quite certain that this whole world of toxins and all of this stuff is maybe 5% of the problem with our, with our diseases. And then there's a virus. A virus can go into your DNA and, and insert its own DNA. That is a type of Mutation, would you agree? They can also take a piece and of your own DNA and put it somewhere else. Is that a type of mutation? Yeah. Even a positional movement is a type of mutation that can result in cancer. Copy error. This is one of the most interesting to me. Uh, I wish that eraser worked better. And um, just for fun. Uh, we'll just write over it and you'll still see it, right? We have uh, three billion rungs in our ladder. Do you all know what I'm talking about? When the, when the ladder is copied, when the cell mute, makes another cell, there is one mistake out of every thousand rungs. Did I say three billion? Thank you. One mistake out of every thousand. How many mistakes is that? That's three million mistakes. Right? Divide three billion by a thousand? 
You ready to say wow for that? Yeah. Now the creator, this is interesting. I, I'm gonna, the, the, sir, uh, question on copy error. Um, because there is a whole phalanx of proteins in the cell machines that travel down the DNA and fix the mistakes. Amazing. It's astonishing. But they miss. These are averages. One out of a thousand. They fix 999 mistakes and miss one. So, whereas this corresponded to 3 million mistakes, we now have 3,000 mistakes on average after the cell divides. I'm discussing copy error. Is this a kind of mutation? Sure. An A is in the wrong place, right? It should have been a C or a G or something. Okay. So, here's an interesting application. This is so fascinating, friends. We're talking now, what I really want to zero in on today, folks, is not treatment for cancer, although I have a section of that. I don't think we'll get to that because it's, um, but it's prevention. And that is um, the, um, by the way, besides colon cancer, the big killers are breast cancer, 40,000 females in the U.S. die a year, breast cancer, 40,000. 32,000 men die every year of prostate cancer in this country. The number two killer of men after uh, lung cancer and, and, of course, heart disease is prostate cancer, number two killer. And black men is the number one killer. So there's variations in populations and so forth, but that's about where it is. 32,000 men. So breast cancer, here's an interesting story. The, uh, the lining of the milk duct is where about 80 I think it's 87, I'll show you this figure. 87% of breast cancer occurs in the lining of the milk duct. Every cycle, all of the cells on the lining die. And just before they die, they copy themselves. Doesn't happen until the little girl starts cycling. And... uh, there's copy error, is there not? And so, I don't know if you're aware of this, you, you probably are to some degree. In, in this country, 150 years ago, the menarche, the onset of menstruation, was at 19 years of age. 100 years ago, it was 16 years of age. And today, it's 11.2. There's a distribution, right? There's a, there's a, but that's the mean, the average. And uh, I was aware of this. And I was aware of the fact from my graduate work in physiology that um, if you, um, there's a picture I need to show you, but um, let me just say this, that um, a high protein diet causes an early maturation. In China today, where these rural communities live, uh, and this is all elucidated in the book, The China Study. The uh, menarche is 16 years of age. In the cities? Oh, a small effect. The big effect. And, of course, hereditary, hereditary, that's an anecdote. That's not a study. Keep that in mind. Keep that in mind. An anecdote. No, I'm just saying that we can't talk. To give one example is is not 
the answer to understanding the picture. I'm going to give you an anecdote about my family. I was aware of this fact from these studies. And before our girls were born, we were living on a, on a plant-based diet. And I'm thinking to myself, is it going to take two or three generations for this effect to take place? And both of our girls, instead of uh, menarche at around 11 years, were 16 years of age. Now, it's an anecdote. We're not sure why that was. But it's quite likely that it was because they were on a low-protein diet, right? So, let's say that it's 30 days instead of 28, and it's the 11 to 16. Uh, how many cycles did those girls miss? Five times 12. 60 cycles. 60 cycles, folks, of copy error. And I, you gals probably know this, that late menarche corresponds with lower incidences of female organ cancer. Not just, not just the milk duct cancer. Y'all with me on this? Uterine, it, all of the female organs are subject to this copy error because every cycle the body gets ready to, to have a child. And if, the, if, the, if there's no fertilization, the, the cells don't just hunker down and get, get ready again. They die and make new copies. Copy error. Very interesting. Now, and the copy error is more dangerous at the beginning than at the end because this stuff is cumulative, see. And furthermore, something I'll get into in a few minutes. So, copy error is a big, big issue in prevention. And uh, that's just what I was saying a few minutes ago, what's being written there now. I'd love to talk about telomere loss. I don't think I better. We need to get on to um, the China study. Just quickly, Chow and Lai got cancer in don't hold me to this number. I think it was the early 80s. And he was quite interested to know then what was happening to his people. And he actually uh, commissioned the health agencies to find out how much cancer was occurring all over the country. And uh, they had this map where the darker areas have more cancer. And huge portions of the country, extremely low cancer rates. Now, an interesting thing about all of this is that unlike our country and many other countries, uh, it's something like 85% of Chinese have the same genetic strain. They're all members of the same tribe. So it kind of takes out of the picture genetic issues. Does that make sense? And uh, uh, as this thing was developing... Uh, T. Colin Campbell, Dr. Campbell from the University of Cornell, the head of the nutrition department, got wind of this and he got in touch with them. And listen, you, if, how many have read the China study? Can I see your hands? Not enough. You need to get that book and read it. it you'll just you'll love it. And uh, they actually surveyed the dietary habits of over 880 million people. Imagine that. Chinese government supplied a lot of the work. They actually went to the home for three days and watched what they ate. Incredible. And uh, they went to the stores and the shops in the town to see what was available to eat. This has all been, this data has all been collected. It's incredible. And Campbell uh, analyzed this data and as a result wrote and did a lot of studies on animals as he saw this. It's a fascinating experience. T. Colin Campbell started out to show that you could make the world well, the, the third world countries that were so sick, by getting them more protein. He was a rancher, was raised on a ranch like I was. And he turned out 
It turned out he was absolutely wrong. It's a very interesting story. He tells this whole story um, and found out that what people needed was low protein, low fat, high carbohydrate from unrefined plant sources based on millions of people who don't get cancer. Isn't that amazing? Just incredible. And here's how he... This is the rate of cancer in these Chinese counties. It ranged from zero to 75. Rural city. Uh, Seven to 248, liver cancer. Rural city. Rural means they were raising their own food and eating from their own gardens. Incredible. So, and and then he did these studies on animals. Watch this, folks, where he found that milk protein turns on the cancer process or turns it off if it's not there. you got to read this book. With these little rats, they could, they could make the rats get cancer or make them not get cancer by feeding the milk protein or not feeding the milk protein. Even after they had the cancer, they could shut the cancer process off by taking them off the uh, uh, milk protein. And actually, it turned out to be casein, which is about 80 Two or eighty-seven percent of the protein in milk is is casein. Yeah, is it a good idea to replace cow's milk with some some other milk? Uh, actually, it depends on how rich it is. I was teasing the people here the first day, saying, "Why don't we have women pump and let's use human milk? If we're going to use any milk at all, let's get human milk. Wouldn't that make more sense?" Somebody said it's kind of gross. I don't know why it's gross. It seems grosser to me to get under a cow and suck on the cow's teeth than, than to get some, some, uh, some, some human milk. I'm coming to that. I'm coming to that. So, uh, follow me and then we'll come to this. So, uh, it depends on how rich it is. See, milk is, is way too rich for us to use as a food all our lives. Uh, a, a cow's milk is designed to have a calf gain a thousand pounds in a year, and and mother's milk is designed to. You ladies, tell me, doesn't a baby double its weight in about six months? Just think about that. Doubling your weight, you need some rich food for that. See, and milk is the rich food. So if the if the plant milk is as rich as as breast milk, whether it's from a cow or whatever, it's too rich, except maybe in small amounts. So in our home, we do use soy milk. Neva usually makes it. Sometimes we buy it. But um, I mix it with water, partly because I'm a cheapskate. That's my other, <laughs> that's my other middle name. Why are you laughing? <laughs> do, you, do, you identi- do you identify with that? Your face is familiar to me. Do we know each other? Oh, okay. Forgive me for not making that connection. So um, anyway, it's too rich. We should not be drinking Milk, in my opinion, even if it's soy milk. Soy milk is pretty rich. Soybeans are pretty high in fat in comparison to all the plants. Soybeans, well, rice milk would be better because it's not as high in fat. But we ought to get away from, you all know this, folks, we should get away from drinking very much with our meals, should we not? A little on your cereal, a little in the mix to make the cake or whatever, sure. We'll go here and then over to you, dear. Do you remember what you were going to say? I didn't say that. It's a tempting parallel. And actually, the scientists are thinking that somehow they might make this happen. But with the rats. Now, these are what we call. 
I'm sorry that it takes so much time, but these are transgenic rats which have been genetically bred so that they get breast cancer easily. So with those mice, with those rats, they look like mice, they could make them get breast cancer by feeding them casein or not get breast cancer at all if they didn't feed them any casein. And even after it was present, they could turn off the growth by taking away the casein. This is all in the China study. You'll love this book, folks. You've got to read it. It is fascinating stuff. What if you drink low-fat milk? Still has the casein in it. No, it, the, the fat is not where the protein is. The, 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 the no-fat or the non-fat milk still has all the protein in it. Well, we're talking about two different things here, actually. Uh, milk is too rich for us once we're three years old. It's just too, ma- too many calories. Uh, what, you know what causes diabetes is actually too many calories, for example. And too many calories causes all kinds of problems, not to mention just overweight. So that's the problem with the richness. There's other problems as well connected with such things as the protein and cancer and so forth. So we're really getting a lot of questions suddenly. There must be something about milk that the body needs, right? (laughs) What about coconut milk? It's too rich to drink. A little coconut milk and some ice cream. Uh, A little coconut milk to make a cake. But I, you know, I I I don't ever use coconut milk on my cereal. In my opinion, it's just way too rich. But I do use some soy milk and I put water with it. Almond milk, all the nuts are high in what, friends? And fat has two and a quarter times as many calories as carbohydrate or protein. So anything from nuts and olives and avocados and seeds is going to be high in fat, high in calories. And so we should use it sparingly. Did you get the impression from Ellen White that we should use nuts sparingly? Yeah, she talks about that. You could get too many nuts just because they're too rich. Too much protein, too much fat, and not enough carbohydrate. Our bodies are designed to run on carbohydrate. The Gerson Clinic. And several other uh, speakers that I have heard have said that, uh, that the soy has something in it that causes your blood cells to clump together. And I have given it up when I heard that. Yeah, this is a good point. Uh, Have you heard, how many of you have heard that soy is bad for you? It's a, it's a, it's a lay idea that has gotten legs without scientific basis. I don't have time to get into it, but I'll I'll, I'll say one thing and then I'll tell you where to get some information. The world's leading authority on soy is a PhD in nutrition, written a number of books, in such demand, respected the world over. He has quit teaching and quit researching. He's, He's constantly flying and speaking somewhere all the time over the world. It just happens. He's a friend of mine. I know him and his wife. I called them. It's been a couple of years ago. And I said, can you give me the latest stuff you have on soy? They sent me two pages of research references with their comments. And you can get those on our website under the FAQ section. You all know what I mean by FAQ. Frequently asked questions. And it's a pretty good summary. Now, what's kind of going on is this. Soy is rich in phytoestrogens, plant estrogens. Plants make chemicals that are similar to the estrogens that we make in our bodies. And there's an assumption because we know that estrogen, uh, estrogen, 
pulses growth. And pulsing growth helps cancer. You all with me? And in some breast cancers, and I'm not sure, I can't keep you here very much longer, and there's so much we could look at, but uh, you may not know this, there's about seven different kinds of breast cancer, and one of them is responsive to estrogen. It has, in fact, it's ER positive, estrogen receptor positive. There's a receptor that when estrogen hooks to it, makes the cancer grow fast. And if you give the female tamoxifen, tamoxifen, it happens to fit the receptor. Proteins work because of their... And now the estrogen can't occupy the receptors, and so it slows the growth. It rarely is a cure. Occasionally, for reasons that we don't understand, the tumor dries up and dies. And, and we, there have been cures just from tamoxifen, but rarely. What it is, it just helps the estrogen, keeps the estrogen from stimulating the growth. Estrogen is a growth promoter for, cancer, for a certain kind of breast cancer. You all with me on the idea of growth promoter? So uh, this has been a lay idea that, this, uh, that the plant, we call them plant... Uh, Phyto plant estrogens, they're not exactly like estrogen, but they're similar and they have similar functions. And so we've assumed or people have assumed this must be bad for you. Now, you could probably uh, guess off the start that God knew when he made soybeans that there were phytoestrogens in them, right? And it just turns out that the research does not support this idea that, that I've just been discussing with you. So read it. Read it on our website. Yeah, um, that is a oversimplification. Uh, cancer cells have to have energy to grow, and that they, they grow best on uh, they they grow very well on uh, uh, carbohydrates, like any cell does. So it's kind of a it's kind of a it's sort of the pill thing again. Oh, I'll quit sugar, and that will take care of things. But what will take care of things? The best we can do, folks. Guess what? A whole regimen of plants unrefined, see. So you got to be careful. Uh, people can oversimplify things. Well, let me hasten on and let you get out of here. I know you, you're dying to get out of here. Are you aware of that alkaline Yes. And uh, it's not really, it's another one of those things. There, I, there's one guy out there that says it is, an, it is a acid food that causes all cancers. It just is not true. But, you know, these things get legs. It's amazing because of the Internet. And everybody is looking for an easy solution, aren't they? Don't make me change my whole lifestyle. Just give me a machine that makes alkaline water that I can drink. Right? It's the truth. It's an amazing. Did I get the hand that was over here? Yeah, okay. Let me, let me try just to get a little farther in this. And uh, notice this. Animal fat intake and breast cancer. It's a straight line. The more animal fat, the more breast cancer. You understand the idea here? This is per country. And it's even stronger uh, for, can for uh, cancer death. More animal fat, more dietary fat. Uh, I'm sorry, more, a more animal fat. And uh, here is plant fat. Since it's all over the board, something else is going on. 
It's not a line. You understand the idea? Something else is causing these cancers. Here's the China study. What we found was shocking. Low-protein diets inhibited the initiation of cancer by aflatoxin, regardless of how much of the carcinogen was administered. We found that not all proteins had this effect. It was casein, which makes up 87% of cow's milk protein, which promotes all stages of the cancer process. Not just the growth, but even the initiation of the cancer through the mutation process. And he describes it in more detail in the book than I have time to do. Yeah, see, yeah, see, here's the thing. All these, all these, many vegan products, folks, this is why I don't like the V word. You can get all kinds of stuff that's vegan that's bad for you. You know that, don't you, if you think about it. You've, well, but people think that it's good because it's all vegan except something. Uh, Anyway, let me pass up these interesting pictures and get to something that will be quite practical for you. Um, Here's the combination of the carcinogen and the promoter. Now, watch carefully. I'm getting close to where we'll get you out of here. The carcinogen does the mutation. Are you with me? The promoter causes it to grow. We've always thought that the effect is proportional to the dose and that there is no threshold. We have evidence that there is a threshold. I'll explain what that means. Here's the idea that we thought. You give people this much carcinogen, you get a certain amount of cancer in the population. You double the amount of carcinogen the population is exposed to, you get double the cancer. You understand what I'm saying? This has been the interpretation. And I'll pass this up. Interesting, but not terribly important for what we're trying to do here for a minute. Here's the threshold effect. You can have exposure up to a certain place from the carcinogen and not see any cancer in the population. After the threshold, after the threshold, you see this proportionality that we always have seen in the studies before. Y'all with me on this? And here's a couple of examples. Normally, I put a curve line. Who was it? I put a curve line on there because there are some cases where you see an amplified effect later on. Yeah, but it, 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 we've always felt that the studies indicated that there was a proportionality or a straight line. Uh, aflatoxin, no problem in the U.S. for liver cancer. Hardly any. Primary cancer, huh? Lots of liver cancer, but it's almost always a metastasis. You all with me on this? Okay. In Africa... They get, they get a lot of aflatoxin and they see uh, lots of liver cancer. So there's a threshold. Do we get aflatoxin in this country? Yes. But it's like there's a threshold. We're not seeing much cancer from it because of this threshold effect. They're, and this is all stuff in the literature if you're interested. I, I, I wanted to ask you a question about this this morning. If you take a black light and look at the nuts before you process them, those that come out real light, white color are the ones that have yeah, well, yes, that's interesting. I, I'm unaware of that, but if that's if that's the case, it's very interesting. Um, I'm going to pass this one up. It's some other examples. Here's the one I'd like you to think about. Now, this is promoters. I hope this doesn't confuse you, folks, but both, follow me now, both carcinogens and promoters are showing a threshold effect. You all with me on the idea? 
you can be exposed to some of this and it doesn't cause a problem unless you get past the threshold. That's the idea. And here's an, uh, this is very interesting to me, as you'll see. The omega-6 oils, you all know about omega-3s. You know there's something called omega-6s. Are strong promoters, powerful promoters in both human and animal models of breast cancer, colon, prostate, pancreas, probably others. So you say, what? Plants are full of this stuff, right? Yes. The ratio in America of sixes to threes, can you follow me, is four to one in plants. If you eat an unrefined plant-based diet, you get four times as much sixes as threes. Are you with me? And that's just exactly it happens what the body needs to make hormones and do all the stuff that those things are used for. The average American getting 15 to 30 times as much sixes as threes from the animal refined diet. So it's not as though the Lord made a mistake here. It turns out that omega-6s are strong promoters, but watch this interesting point. This promotion is seen when the diet has 40% of its energy from fat, but not when it falls in the range of 15 to 20. Man, I wish you all would have said, wow. Why would you say wow? What did we find when somebody uses a plant-based diet unrefined? What did we find in our studies? What percentage of their calories is coming from fat? You don't remember. I told you that I taught nutrition and studied the students who ate at Neva's table. And I said their fat intake, long before I knew this, fell between 17 and 20% of their calories. Very interesting. You start using fat, folks. Butter, margarine, oil on this, oil on that. You get yourself right up to 40% really fast. See? So, what I'm saying to you, like I said all week long, everywhere we turn, we keep seeing these signs that say, use plants unrefined. And the the evidence that we mark for 32 years is just mind-boggling how people get well. I saw a lady come in there when I was the administrator for a year and a half with uh, fibromyalgia that the poor girl, it just broke my heart. I say, girl, she was probably 55 Everybody was seated in a circle the opening night. You know, I'm so-and-so and from such-and-such, and this is why I came. And, and she's laying over there on the floor with four or five pillows the whole time, just struggling to find just, just, just a little relief. A week and a half later, I bumped into her on campus. She was walking around like she was a 15-year-old girl. I said, how are you doing? She said, the pain's just almost virtually gone. In how long? A week and a half on unrefined plant-based diet, folks, and activity. It's just incredible. And uh, did God give us, not only from the Garden of Eden, but did he, give us the, did he give us the idea that this would be the best plan from a certain woman that wrote about a hundred years ago? Did he give us that idea? Yeah, he really did. Now, listen, this, this really makes me excited. Using a macrobiotic diet, emphasizing whole grains. Now, I don't, I don't promote this thing. This has got some crazy features to it. But nevertheless, whole grains, vegetables, legumes, avoiding dairy products and most meats. Nine men with prostate cancer. Now, these were two groups of men that were picked with fairly advanced prostate cancer. Matched. you understand what I mean? Matched. Nine men survived 19 years 
compares to the other group that just stayed on the average American lifestyle who lived six years on average. Is it wow? I'll take 19 years any day, wouldn't you? Now, um, she says, what about testicular cancer? Yeah. Well, you know, each one of these things could be studied. But the point is, we believe the mechanism here is the omega-6 oils that are in such smaller amounts to get you below the threshold. You all with me? Is the cancer still growing? Yes, but very, very slow. Now, can you stand just a few more minutes on breast cancer? I looked at the prostate cancer issue. Let me look at the breast cancer issue for just a minute. Um, I got to get past it here. A bunch of interesting stuff. I could I could talk to you about breast cancer for the rest. I mean, prostate cancer for the rest of the day. It's a special interest to me. But uh, you understand special interest to me. But nevertheless, uh, colon cancer. Oh, I didn't tell you one thing about colon cancer. Uh, raise your right hand and repeat after me. I promise to get colonoscopies. <laughs> They'll put you out. You don't even know it. I don't want to be put out. I want to watch. So I watch it every time my doctor does it for me. That stuff's interesting to me. If you could stand it, I'd show you a video of the inside of my colon. <laughs> oh, no, oh, here's the problem. The best clinician misses 10 to 50, 15% of the polyps. That's the best. But they tell us to get it every five years. Well, listen, I'm just, I just want you to know that it's not perfect. But isn't 85% of the polyps gone better than none? Yes. Sure. Now, an interesting story is uh, this friend of mine who's a GI doc, we've been working together for years, and so we, we talk about this stuff, not around the dinner table, but most of the time. And... Uh, the, the head of the GI department at Loma Linda University scopes, this is not to smile about, he scopes the head of surgery, the guy that would normally be removing colons when they have cancer. And the guy died two and a half years later of colon cancer. So the best guy in the world is going to miss some. And I've asked my friend, why is this? Well, he said, and they always say, even with a properly prepared colon. What that means is there's nothing left in there that might obscure the vision. So they give you a gallon of Go Lightly to drink. And whether you drink it fast or slow, it will still take care of the issue. You don't have to drink it all in one day if you don't want to. Once you're done with it and you're not eating anything, you will be clean as a whistle. Anyway, the colon has folds. And as they travel through the colon with their scope, they can't, they can't bend it clear back and look around every little corner, so they miss a few. But you still should do it. You still agreed to, didn't you? You just did. You just did. Okay. All right. Here we go. Oh, how often? If you've got colon cancer in your history, I think you ought to start at 45. Most physicians will tell you that. And they will tell you then how often. They will look at the tissue in the polyps and depending on how advanced it may be toward uh, strange growth or toward cancer growth, they'll say this is how soon you ought to come back. It's very good advice. It's dependable. It, there's nothing flaky about that. That's exactly right. I have to come back every five years. 
Uh, it just depends. Yes. Well, there's no question about this. A plant-based diet on the average person, much fewer polyps, much less likely for the polyps to become hyperplasia, a precancerous condition, but still uh, they grow. I've been on this diet for 40 years and every time he sees me, there's one or two polyps. Very preliminary, undeveloped, but they're there. She says, is there a... She's declaring it, but is there a high risk on colonoscopies? In other words, well, the, can the physician make a mistake and perforate the colon and cause... Sure. But listen. Yeah. But you, you need to understand that that is a tiny, tiny percent. And even if the physician makes a mistake, we have wonderful ways to treat it. It is rare for there to be a death. And, and a million times more chance for getting death from colon cancer. So we take the risk. I don't care what you do to your body, there's a risk. You step up on the platform, there's a risk, right? You might fall over and break your neck. i got to keep going, you guys. They always remove the polyps. They always remove them. Because they want to do a tissue sample. They want to have a pathologist look at it and see how they're doing. Okay, let's try to hurry on here. Here we go. Breast cancer risk. Here's how to increase breast cancer risk. Early menarche. First childbirth after 35 years. I don't know if you gals know this. I'll show you in a minute. The milk ducts become cancer-resistant. And, and especially the, the lobules that create the milk become cancer-resistant if the, if the female has a child before she's 35 years of age. We don't know why. Very interesting. Now, most of you are too old for that, but you've got kids and you've got grandkids, Isn't right? In an early menarche, if you have a child before... Yes. Oh. Yes. No birth children. Listen, you gals know this. The more children you have, the more cycles you miss. Because almost all women, not everybody, but uh, almost all women are not cycling what, during the nine months. Is that correct? And if they nurse, they're not cycling. Most of them, right? So it stands to reason there's less copy error, right? If the mother, if a, if a woman has more children, and of course if she uh, lactates for them. Smaller number of children. This is a risk, you understand. Um, later age at menopause. Why is that? Because at menopause, the copying error stops. You all with me on this? So late menopause is a higher risk. It's not as big a factor as many of these. Family history, of course. Use of hormone replacement therapy. I mentioned this. I, I, I won't take time on it. But you know that hormone replacement therapy almost came to a halt in this country as a result of the Women's Health Initiative about in 04. Remember that. And now the doctors are saying, if you're having a really bad time with hot flashes, I'll let you have it for just a little while to try to calm it down. And a lot of women say, well, I'm not sure I even want that. I, I, yes, it's, it's an issue, but I'm not going to go there right now. Uh, this is just the other side of the coin. And almost all of these things are just the opposite of what we said. So I'm going to not take any time on that. Here is this milk duct. And let me show you what's going on here. Uh, by the way, some people say to me, why do men have nipples? You give a man estrogen, he develops female-like breasts. And uh, there, are, there, are, there is liter literature... Uh, there, there are records in the literature of men being able to lactate and, and nurse a baby, probably because the man 
was, for various reasons, making more estrogen or something. It's pretty rare. And it's probably more than just estrogen. So it's a complicated mix of hormones. But nevertheless, oh, so the physiology before the sex is, is, the sex is chosen by the, as you know, the X and Y chromosomes. But before they start to express themselves, the general physiology is there, including breasts for a man or for a woman, male or female. So, uh, nevertheless, um, here we have these milk-producing lobules, they're called, and the duct. And uh, the lobules come in several types. Um, And I'll show you what those are. In type 1, there's only 11 of these per duct. Type 2, quite a few more, 47. Sorry that I'm standing in front, but because my dot doesn't work very well. Type 3, twice as many. And type 4, I'll show you what's going on there in a minute. Type 1 lobules become type 2 at menarche. So a little girl has milk ducts, and so does a male have a kind of a proto-milk duct uh, with very few of these little lobules. But at menarche, these um, type... uh, Oh, and, and type 1 developed ductal cancer... Uh, 85% of all tumors. And the idea is that um, if you never have a child, you never get type 2 or type 3 lobules. You would get type uh, 2 lobules at menarche, but even still you have type 1 lobules that develop 85% of all tumors in these lobules. And I think I got that wrong when I told you earlier. I said the duct, but it's the lobule. Now, uh, type 2 develop lobular tumors. I'm sorry, I did get it right. The ductal cancer is, in, is where most of the cancer occurs. And in the lobules, only 12% of the tumors. And they come from both types that occur if there's no pregnancy. Notice what it says here. Type 2 become type 3 and type 4 with pregnancy. And type 3 and 4 are cancer-resistant. Type 4 regresses to type 3 after weaning. So the physiology of the milk-producing organ is um, of a nature to, to prevent cancer if a woman bears children. Isn't that amazing? And bears them early. What did God say to Adam and Eve? Be fruitful and multiply. Very interesting. See. If she doesn't nurse, uh, you still get this development. You know, colostrum is produced by these lobules at first, and they have developed into type 3 and type 4, even if you don't nurse. But um, there are various advantages and probably some we don't even understand. But, of course, the nursing continues that stops the cycling for for a year or two, right? Not a bad idea to nurse for two years. Certainly don't give this child any whole food until at least six months has gone by. Now, here's an interesting thing, folks. I wish you gals would all write this down. There is a surgeon whose name is Susan Love. I just love this gal. (laughs) We don't know each other. Um, She has such a burden for female, for breast cancer in particular. And uh, just spending herself and all her money 
to try to do something with this 40,000 deaths a year. This is just incredible. And she has a website. She's trying to enroll a million females. Because here's what's going on. We now know there's this thing called DCIS. How many of you gals know about it? Can I see your hands? DCIS. Ductal cancer in situ. Cancer cells develop and never become tumors. And this was the study that I referred to. I think it's in another slide here, but I'm not going to go there. I think it was 37% of all these breast cancers would not need to be treated because there it is, but it's not growing. Are you all with me? Growth factor issues is what's going on here. And it's probably going to turn out she's trying to enroll a million women so she can tease out. She just wants you to just tell her what's going on just a little bit. Just keep, just keep in touch with her. And she hopes that she can tease out of that data what it is that's keeping the DCIS from growing. Y'all with me on the idea? And I think what's going to happen is it's going to be people that are on a plant-based diet and getting lots of exercise and uh, living in the country when they can. All, all this stuff that God has given us. Y'all with me? It's going to be very interesting. But it's fun to listen to her talk. And, uh, and, and, and there's even... LCIS, lobular cancer in situ, that is not growing. And she wants to know why. What can we do to make this stuff not grow? That's kind of what's going on. I wanted to talk to you more about the seven different kinds of cancer and what that all means, breast cancer, but I think you've sat here way too long, and I apologize for talking so much and taking all your time. (laughs) few questions. Yes. Since the primary tumor has been removed, well, then metastasis grows phenomenally because the primary tumor itself has some kind of uh, um, inhibitors that it's, it's releasing all the time that it's there. And once you remove that primary tumor, the inhibitors no longer be thrown out. And so then the metastasis goes down. You all heard the question, did you not? The question is, when you remove the tumor, is there some inhibition the tumor was spreading out to the other tumors and now they don't have that so they grow faster that's probably not the case uh, and here's what's actually happening you all know people all say this the tumor was removed and all of a sudden there's just cancer all over the place see what's happening is during the 10 years folks those cells are out there they start to grow and some of them are not very far behind the initial cancer you're following what I'm saying and so These tumors are all out there growing. They just haven't been diagnosed or imaged yet. Y'all with me on the idea? And it doesn't take very long before they also start showing up as well. So this is, we don't really know what's going on here, but we do know this part I've just described is a big issue in terms of all this cancer that suddenly shows up. It just has been growing there for most of the same time. In the case of uh, removal of the cancer, the physicians are killing all the other cells with the chemotherapy, how can some of them escape and still start over again? You follow what I'm saying? I think you're asking there, if, if, if somebody is receiving chemotherapy, uh, the cells around the cancer are being killed throughout the whole body. Throughout the whole body. Yeah, doesn't it uh, kill most of the... Uh, oh, kill well, the, the problem with chemotherapy is... 
It's a very poor answer almost always. Does it stunt the growth of tumors? Does it sometimes cause the tumor to be so stunted it regresses in size? Yes. Rarely does it ever disappear. Rarely. Rarely. And so you can't kill all these cells. You're certainly not going to kill all the cells that have meandered out there. You're going to kill some of them, sure. But it is, it's just the best thing that, surgeons, that, that the medicine has right now. And it's a terrible, terrible thing. And, folks, the point is, let's learn how to prevent it. Amen? And let's learn how to make it grow slowly if it does occur. Oh, what about vitamin C? Uh, oh, what about damage? I thought you were asking, does it help? Uh, in spite of what you hear about these clinics that use it, there have been a number of studies and massive vitamin C doses do not show up in these studies as helping. But whether there's damage or not, I've never seen anybody show that there was a problem with the damage. The body just excretes it prodigiously. And so I have several friends that underwent massive doses and they died. That's an anecdote, folks. You've got to look at a population before you can say anything. But there have been studies that, that say that this is not, uh, not an effective treatment. And then we'll come over here. You're a half hour into the next speaker's time. Oh, oh dear. It's not very... I didn't even know there was a speaker, and I do apologize. So, God bless you all. I've got to stop. Yeah, that we're... Yeah. I mean, just to For, make it yeah, out. Forgive me. Sorry. Yeah, you can. Why is it so dangerous? Because it's in so... I see it in a lot of things. It causes an elevation of LP little a. Yeah.